We're going to talk about Christ again this week as the central piece of the entire gospel narrative, and any part of Christian theology has to derive itself from the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Anytime the church or theologians have tried to minimize that, the theology has gotten confused. Because all pieces of theology, whether it's our study of the church, our study of sin, our study of who we are, have to be tied back to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make sense of Christian theology. We're going to talk particularly about the crucifixion, the the cross, and and, and Jesus dying for us. Some of you may be thinking, I know this. I've been to church. I've, I've, I've been there enough times to know the story. I'm going to challenge you, do not check out. It would be the equivalent of going to the beach and, and wading out in the ocean, maybe even swimming out to where it's above your head and thinking, I now know the ocean. I, I know the miles of its depths. I'm, I'm sure I must know every piece of marine life that's there. To, to think because we know about the cross can allow us to move away from the cross or think we've understood it is really ignorance on it. Because we're going to spend some time talking very deeply about the different facets of the cross. We're in a portion of the series where we're focusing on Christology, and we're talking about the Christ event this way, that in the incarnation, God is with us, Emmanuel. He comes and stands with us. On the cross, God dies for us. He's the high priest making sacrifice for us. And at his resurrection and ultimate return, he's represented as Christ over us, seated at the right hand and coming back to show himself as the king of this world that he created. Last week we talked about the incarnation, that the birth was a promise, a word was given from God, that there would be this one after the fall who would be wounded by the serpent but would ruin the serpent, he would crush his head. And we saw the the joy of that with Simeon taking the baby in his arms and celebrating, And, and we understood the suffering that patience calls us to. That as we wait patiently on God, that that root word for patience is to suffer, that we, we calmly but discomfortly Wait on our king. And the promise wasn't just for this infant that we adore at Christmas to be born. It was that he would do a work among us. This week we're going to focus on that work and the cross. I'm not going to talk about the gruesome details. I've done that before. Other churches have done that before. If you want to understand more of what the cross was really like, you can Google and find medical doctors and historians who will inform you with great detail on how horrible death by cross was, so much so that, that we would come up with our own word excruciating for something that was just uh, you know, unusual suffering based on from X, the cross, excruciating. But I, I want to focus instead not on those details, but on what the cross does. Because I think sometimes we can simplify something so that we can understand it or talk about it and actually reduce the possibility of thinking more deeply about that. So here's the roadmap for today. We're going to talk about what the cross is and then what the cross displays. That it displays the nature of God, it displays salvation for sinners, and it displays the victory of Jesus Christ. And then finally, what it means to live at the foot of the cross, constantly in the shadow of this cross. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and ask for one. Someone will bring you one. There won't be verses up on the screen today. We're going to go to a couple different places. So to follow along in the text, please get a Bible. Romans 3.21 is where I'll be starting. I'll give you some time to turn there. 
there will be some key pieces and words and language that is more theological, less used in common conversation. I promise you we're going to get to all of those as we talk further about the cross today. But let's read, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the discussion about the cross. Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you, as a people seeking you, wherever we are in that journey, God, it it may be days where we're not even sure where you are, how you are. It may be days, Lord, where we've spent years walking after you. We ask today that you would reveal more clearly two things to us. Would you show us how you see us? And would you show us more of who you are? And Lord, in that moment, that if it is revealed, in that moment, that would likely be our undoing. We ask you again for grace, grace that holds us together when presented before you so that we can survive this encounter and reflect more of you. We ask this in Jesus' name and through the power of your spirit. Amen. The, the symbol of the cross has been far removed from the context in which Paul wrote this letter, or from the Gospels. To think about the cross in a first century mindset, we would think about a death so shameful and painful that your relatives wouldn't speak of you if you were killed that way. But now we see the cross as necklaces and earrings, ornaments on churches and symbols on cards. And please understand, I'm not against any of those things. The cross has become something to be celebrated now, but it wasn't then. We're removed from a Roman highway stretching 120 miles, filled with thousands of defeated rebels on crosses, dead, decaying, or still suffering alive, for 120 miles. We're removed from from the tortuous deaths that people would watch for hours As Rome said, be very afraid of crossing this power. We we sometimes have to surmount our current times to understand the cross again, to to understand shame and pain that would leave people asking about Jesus, why? Why would God have this happen to, to a righteous person? Why does God do this? Why does the one he called his beloved son die this horrible death? And the question, why why celebrate? The one who can't see glory in the cross can't find anything to celebrate. 
At its worst, it's, it's the loss. It's the death of the great teacher. It's the death of the righteous one. It's an insurmountable loss to all of us. It's someone who wasn't strong, who didn't overcome. It's someone who was arrested, beaten, taken by his enemies, imprisoned, and then publicly killed. It was a display of all the weakness of Jesus of Nazareth, they would say. People mocked it at the time. People stood around at the foot of the cross, and life at the foot of the cross in the first century, at the foot of the cross of Jesus, was a place of mockery because it looked like loss. That that continued. There's graffiti from somewhere between the first and third century, they're not sure where to date it, where there's a drawing of a a crucified person with with a donkey's head. And there's a, a young man at the foot of it hailing that cross, and the graffiti says, Alexamenos worships his God. Because people thought, you're a jackass, your God's a jackass. This person was defeated on the cross, and you will give glory to someone who died that kind of death. To, to understand the cross in all of its glory, we first have to go to somewhere very dark. We, we have to understand sin. Sin's a word that's getting less and less important in Western culture. It's it's used less, it's defined poorly, or defined wrongly. At at times, even within the church, we can struggle with coming up with with definitions of sin. I I want us first to take some time to talk about sin and consider what the Bible says. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. That's one simple biblical definition. This is this. Sin is lawlessness. When Paul's talking about are we justified by the law, he's talking about all the laws that God had presented to his people. And John is saying when you violate the things God has said, you're practicing sin. But there's more. James 4.17 says whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to that one, it's sin. So it's not just the times where we, where we find ourselves lost in selfishness, where we find ourselves doing something wrong. It's the times when we know we could change the course of things. We could do a righteous act. It may interrupt our busyness and be a sacrifice of time. It may, it may hurt our finances and be a sacrifice of money. It, it may just be something that we find difficult to fit in or to do in any way, and we don't do it. We turn away. The Bible says that's sin. So there's, there's active sins, sins of commission, but there's also passive sins, sins of omission. We like lists sometimes, and I think if we're talking about Christianity and lists of sins, you have to go to Exodus 11 and look at the Ten Commandments, where it lays out in ten steps, these are things for the people of Israel that they know will be sin. Sins about how they worship and revere God. Sins about violating other people, stealing from them, envying them, committing adultery. When I read these, I usually find it fairly daunting. I start measuring myself up against it, and I start finding myself undone bit by bit. I think for the people of Israel, freed from slavery, and all the headiness that that must have meant after four centuries of their people being identified as nothing but possessions, four centuries of hopelessness to find a deliverer, following after Moses, seeing the power of God, and the law comes down, I think they felt good. I think we would have felt safe if we were in that crowd, waiting to enter the land and being told, your stuff is safe, because God says no stealing. Your people are safe, because God says no adultery or murder. 
Your relation with God is saved because he says don't worship anything else. But very shortly, they would find out they violated these things constantly. It was a mirror on the darkness of their own soul. And the temple would be filled with an endless stream of animal blood as they made sacrifices for sin, one after another after another. Paul, the great theologian of the New Testament, in Romans 13.10, will say, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He's now reduced the list to one heart motive, the constancy of love like God. When he lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6, where he talks about peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, he says, against such things, when the Holy Spirit's doing these works in you, there's no law. Ultimately, the definition of sin is is not found in a list, it's, it's found in what's not God. Anything out of his character, that's sin. Anything out of the actions he would do, that, that's sin. There are multiple words used in the Bible to talk about sin. Transgress, lawlessness, there's, there's one for a degenerate evil where your character is now perverted and you just find yourself doing these things people were never meant to do. There's one for unrighteousness, but the most common one means missing the target. So there has to be a target. What are we missing when we sin? We're missing God's holiness. And this is where the cross displays our God. The display of God at the cross begins with his holiness. You see, there can't be a coexistence of sin and holiness. The two are binary and antipolar. It's a light and dark. If you put on a bright light in a dark room, the darkness is gone. It doesn't sort of meet in one little area where you have a pocket of light and a pocket of darkness. Put a bright enough light in a dark room, there's nothing but light there anymore. The the light will dispel the darkness. Holiness is like that. It can't coexist with sin. What happens when sin meets the holiness of God is called wrath. Flip back to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know God, they don't obey God, they don't honor him, they don't give thanks. It's the two things Paul will say. They're, they're not serving him as the one who's their rightful Lord, and they're not grateful. And sin gets revealed, and the holiness of God meets sin, and the byproduct of that moment, like two storm fronts coming together, is wrath. People wonder, why is God wrathful? Why do, why do you guys talk about an angry, wrathful God? That's not the core of his nature. God is holy, God is love. But there's a reaction that holiness must have to sinfulness that's present with it. It has to be in conflict with it. And that's where wrath comes out. Wrath is presented in in two different ways in the Bible. There's active wrath. It's those moments of judgment. Like when the people who are waiting for the Ten Commandments are worshiping a golden calf. And Moses comes down and the earth opens up and swallows a whole bunch of them. Wrath of God stuff. Some of you know what the wrath of God is like in your life. It says in Proverbs, after many rebukes, a stiff-necked man is quickly broken. Some of us here would be able to say, this is what it looked like in my life when I was just constantly bringing before God my own sinfulness, not turning from it, though I had opportunity, though I had warning, and then crash. There's also another kind of wrath, which in, in some ways is even more frightening than the act of wrath of God. The passive wrath of God turns us over 
to our own character. If you look down at Romans chapter 1, continuing down there, it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Heart, mind, and body turned over. Where God just says, you know what? You go your way. I will let you go. I won't restrain you. I won't fight with you. I won't bring my act of wrath that's designed to make you uncomfortable and miserable in your sin. Go your own way. If you're in a place where you just find yourself comfortable with your sin, there's not a conviction of conscience, there's not conflict in your life from it, you should be very concerned right about now that you've been left to your own devices without God. If I were in your position, I would be asking for the grace of God to wake me up so that I was no longer just so comfortable in that place that, that God wouldn't leave me like a child left alone in a city, that I would be found again, not just left to my own, given up by God and experiencing that passive wrath. The holiness of God is revealed at the cross because that perfect holiness, that goodness, has to meet our sinfulness. And wrath is the result, but poured out fully on Jesus. The justice of God is also displayed at the cross. So many today want to know how in a world so full of sin, so broken, with, with so much misuse of people, with so much oppression, with so much going on that's wrong, how in that world can God actually be involved? But the justice of God says he is involved in it. It's the question Abraham asked when he knows that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, where holiness is going to meet that sinful city and wrath is going to be the result. And Abraham pleads as he cries out, but will not the God of the universe do what is right? He's counting on the justice of God. Sometimes we don't see it in our short span of time and we think it's absent. That's a mistake. That's what Psalm 73 tries to tell us. When the psalmist is saying, how come the wicked prosper? I see it. I see people who are exploiting the poor just get richer. I, I, see, I see conflicts that are just put on by dictators and tyrants or, or, or sponsored unjustly just for wealth, and they seem to actually prosper. And then the psalmist says, I wised up. I thought about the whole timeline, and I saw their ultimate demise at the judgment of God. When they no longer held their possessions, they no longer held their power, at some point, they would have to meet this just God. And in this world that is so broken, so full of evil, not just around us if we're honest, but completely in us, it's often easy to say, where is justice? Reason alone can't always make sense of the justice in God. But when we see the cross, where we see that payment, that wrath brought upon sin, we, we see not only a holy God, but a just God. People might protest and say, why doesn't he just forgive? Tells us to forgive. Why doesn't he do it too? Is he like a father who tells us to do something that he says but doesn't do? No. Why is it we forgive? He says to the Christian, forgive as Christ has forgiven in you. It's based on the cross. He's given the opportunity for that forgiveness based on the cross. We only know it based on the cross. If he simply said, you know what? You're all forgiven. We wouldn't celebrate. Any more than if a judge in our city said to every robber, rapist, and murderer, you can go. 
It doesn't matter that you did that. I'm just going to forgive you. We all do wrong things. I left the peanut butter out last night. You get to go. You killed somebody. No big deal. Go. We, we would not say that was a just man. Wiser, stronger men would rise up and, well, I'll just, I'll leave revolutionary language out of this. He, he would be corrected. We'll leave it at that. We wouldn't feel good about God if he was turning away from those things, and rightly so, because he wouldn't be just. His holiness and justice is displayed, but so is his love. We have to avoid the idea that can enter into our heads that the cross is really just some spiritual engineering. God had an equation that has to be solved. How do I get these sinful people with me again? I think the strength of this should equal the weight of that, and we should all be fine. If we make it that distant and cold, we lose something very important that the cross reveals. This was an act of love. Perhaps the most well-known evangelical verse out there, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we can so quickly run to the end half of that verse. Okay, I don't want to perish. Yay, I get everlasting life. That we can easily miss the whole front piece that fuels the entire thing. For God so loved the world. Turn to 1 John. First John, also 3.16. John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We don't really know love if not for the cross. John says, by this we actually understand love. See, there are multiple words for love. If you want a good book on it, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves is a great one. There's a love that the Greeks refer to as eros. And, and it's not just a sexual love. It's a, it's a sensual love. It's a love of feeling. There can be someone we talk to, and man, we just feel good around that person. And they feel that way around us, and it's, it's exhilarating to be with them. It, it might be the senses of the way that we, we love the outdoors, and, and we just love the sensory feelings of that. But you know what? That love will let you down. The people who thrill you will also disappoint you at times because they were never designed to hold one kind of love. There's a love called philos. It's a love of friendship. It's not that face-to-face that -face engagement. It's that side-by-side. -side. I, I have someone who travels with me, who does something with me. I have a friend. The love of philos will let you down. There will be points where your friends forsake and disappoint you, where they don't understand you, even wrongly accuse you, or even come to a place where they're not your friend anymore. The lost love, we've been around enough, we will discover, will let us down. This love that John is saying, now we actually understand love, is a different word. It's agape. It's a love without limits. It's a love for something unearned. It's a love that's unconditional and willful. This love we understand only because of the cross, only through the actions of God. It could not be revealed without the cross. It would be a hidden mystery. God would be laws and distance. God would be anger and wrath. The cross reveals true love as all others fade and fail. Same book, next chapter, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
And we find in this love revealed not just holiness and justice, but the God who suffers. God doesn't leave us in our suffering. A lot of times people will will come up with the question, why? Why am I suffering? And we'll often blame God, regardless of why it's happening. It could be something self-inflicted, it could be something by somebody else, it could be just natural passing circumstances in a sinful world. But if you're anything like me, in the midst of my darkest sufferings, I will often lay it on God. Or I'll lay it on God to magically fix it. If you're really good all the time, and you're really powerful all the time, you should do this. This is your job, and you're letting me down by not magically fixing it. You're sitting there being distant beyond my suffering, and you don't magically erase that. It never has. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I've asked that many times. God, would you just take this away? I don't want to have to work through it and grow. I don't want to have to rely on other people. I don't want to have to turn to you. Just take it away. Never has happened once. But I find instead, I begin to have to suffer through things. And I see that God didn't leave me in my suffering at the cross. I see God who joins us in our suffering. A Jesus who is, who is born in human flesh, who the scriptures say suffer temptation just like we do. All the things we struggle with and fall in, but no falling. He suffered temptation without sin. And then he suffered on the cross. It, it divides time, not just A.D. and B.C. It divides time by when I understood the God who suffers for me and with me and not understanding a God who does that. Because if I understand what God has revealed about himself on the cross, I don't ask anymore, why do you leave me in my suffering? I become someone who says, I'm thankful. You've joined me in the greatest suffering I could have or humanity could have. And I know and I believe you haven't left me in these lesser sufferings. So many times we can, we can just minimize the cross to, to one act. It's six hours. Six hours of suffering. Now, if six hours of suffering really cured sin, just like our suffering would, we wouldn't need Jesus. I would sit down with my wife and let her show me three Jane Austen movies in succession, and after six hours, I would be suffered, and and I would be free from all my sin, but that wouldn't happen. One, I'm never doing that, but two, the suffering wouldn't amount to anything. But the quality of the suffering of the Son of God, the suffering of one who was perfect in holiness, was enough suffering to take the sins of every man, woman, and child who would ever exist. It was a different quality that God suffered who was innocent. It was a different quality that God who was eternal suffered. It was a different purpose. He suffered because of us. He didn't earn any of it. Isaiah 53 will say that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. Flip back to 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 18. Peter puts it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The suffering was for sin. And the cross reveals not just the fullness of the character of God, but it reveals so much about him. But it reveals the salvation of sinners. It's easy to make a statement about the cross that catches truth, but not from all of its angles. 
Here's what I mean. We could say, Jesus died on the cross. He was perfectly holy so that he could die for the sins of all humanity. And if we believe that and accept that, we're forgiven of our sins. That's absolutely true. But I would never want you to be stuck at only seeing that in your salvation. It's, it's a gem that's so well-crafted like any diamond that's polished and shaved off. It has multiple facets. And as you stare at the cross and stare at yourself and look at the scriptures and turn this thing, you find it says so much more in depth than just that. It, it speaks of different words, different language, different purposes. It speaks of atonement, at one minute. It makes things possible. It opens salvation. The theological arguments will be, for whom did Jesus die? And there'll be those who will say, for, for everyone, and they will all be saved. There are even those who are universalists who say, not only did he die for everybody, but everyone will get to experience that. There are those on the other extreme who will say, he died only for the elect. He didn't die for everybody. He knew exactly who he died for, and he didn't die for the rest of the people who would not believe in him. The balance is in 1 Timothy 4.10. You can find all the T's in the New Testament together. Of course, that doesn't help you if you don't know where Thessalonians and Titus are too, but it's still true. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's the balance of it. The death of God in Christ was sufficiently valuable enough that every sin you've committed, every sin committed against you, every sin people have committed in every generation, past or will to come, every sin you committed in the past, every one you will commit in the future, it was enough to cover that. He's the savior of all men. The, the death of Jesus Christ was enough to cover the damage of the cosmos that happened in sin. When all creation groans, it will be restored because of that death. The quality of that death was sufficient for all, but it would only be efficient, only be effective for those who believe. Atonement tells us salvation is possible because of the cross. He's the Savior of all men. If you're at the place where you think it's not for me, what I've done is too much, or God wouldn't love me, he wouldn't look to me and make a way for me, atonement tells you don't believe that lie. The death of Christ made his offers of any who will come completely legitimate. It'll be effective for those who believe, but it's possible for you because of atonement. The cross also brings redemption. Exodus 6 6 pictures this. The people of Israel before they were out of captivity. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. It prefigures what will happen in the cross. That he will deliver you, the Lord, out of bondage to the great oppressor, not Pharaoh, Satan. And he will do it with a mighty act. Not opening the waters, but opening a way of salvation. Not, not slaying lambs and putting it over your doorpost so that the angel of death passes over you, but slaying the spotless lamb, the Son of God. It means rescue. That's what redemption means. It means liberation. Kurt Hahn is the guy who founded Outward Bound. And, and he says this, the passion of rescue reveals the highest dynamic of the human soul. There's something at the core of us that loves to see a rescue. 
You watch those films of someone trapped in a raging river in a flood. They're barely hanging onto a rock. And your heart transposes to that one. And you realize that that person in jeopardy, I want to see them saved. And firemen begin to link one by one, barely holding on to ropes that are being pushed down. And they take the person. There's a moment they slip off and then they pull the person back inside. And you feel relief and joy and celebration because something in us says, rescue is good. When we're in peril, we want rescue. We, we, We watch tyrants overthrown and we see people dancing in the street because they know redemption at that point. The cross speaks to us of redeemed people. It changes worlds for us from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Redemption means you can be rescued because of the cross. You're not in a place where you're unreachable. It may be a terrible place that you're in right now. It may be a place of danger. It may be a place of feeling very oppressed by things. But the cross tells us you've been provided with redemption. Jesus has also provided us ransom. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price for captives. We know what ransom is. Kidnappers take somebody, and they say to the family, give us money, we give you this person back. Uh, The movie Man on Fire. I I love this movie. This this is like the other side of Jane Austen movies for my wife. She tries to watch this with me, they start cutting off people's fingers, and she's out. Suffering would be watching the rest of this movie for her. But it's a movie that that shadows and and shows the story of ransom. Denzel Washington plays a a burned-out former special operatives assassin. He's done so much evil that he just never feels clean from it. He's done with it, but it, it just haunts him. He's drinking himself slowly to death, even tries to kill himself quickly once in the movie. And he's at a dead-end job in Mexico working for a family to be a bodyguard for their little girl, driving her to school, driving her back, and just living there and drinking his life away. But the little girl wins his heart over. Eventually, he just loves her, and it brings a life back to him. But then she's kidnapped. She's taken away. She's in utter terror, just being held by these people who are using the love of family to exploit family. They've turned what's natural into something for evil gain, and they want money for And Denzel realizes he's not going to let this happen. And he goes on a killing spree, taking out anyone who had anything to do. This is why I like this movie. Who had anything to do with doing this unjust act. And eventually, the head of this whole unjust network cuts a deal with him and says, you know, this has got to stop. I'm losing my entire network if you keep this up. And Denzel, who's bleeding to death and wounded, from fighting this battle says, we'll do it. And the guy's words are, a life for a life. We'll make the exchange, a life for a life. And as they're driving up a hill, and they finally get to the crest of it where they're meeting, and he steps out of the car, she steps out and runs to her mother down the hill, he expires, considering those words, a life for a life. And it's ransom paid. That girl is free. That's the cross. You're ransom paid by Jesus who took a soul that was bound, deserving hell. The wages of sin is death. If you're a person who realizes the sin in your life deserved hell, good for you. You you get it. You get how serious sin is. That's what you earn. That's the wages that you paid. That's where you were going. But that can change because Jesus on the cross tells us ransom has been paid. You don't have to be held to that. You're free. 
It's also propitiation, that word that we read in Romans and in 1 John, and expiation. Let me try to break down those words a little bit. We, we saw in Romans that it said in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation means something was given for sin. That, that's, what it, that's just what the root of that is, that it's been paid because of that. So the sins that you've committed, they were paid because of that death by blood. Expiation is a little bit different. If we're back in Israel, we'd celebrate the Day of Atonement. And it would be a day where you're supposed to be intimately acquainted with your sins of that year. I don't know how intimately acquainted we really are. I doubt if we sat down with paper and tried to write the sins we committed in the course of a year. I doubt we'd probably even remember or know 10% of the ones. But the idea was that you could bring them all, and two goats would be brought to the priest. And he'd put his hands on one and say, the sins of the people on this goat. That would be the last thing little Billy Goat would hear, because then he would be killed, he'd bleed out, and he was the sacrifice for sin. The people went, yay, my sins are taken care of because the goat died. Then the second goat, he gets a slap on the butt and goes running off in the woods. That's expiation. The first goat's propitiation. He died for the sins that the people had committed. The second goat takes away the shame and damage of sin. The Old Testament speaks multiple times about defilement, that the sins of someone brought on you made you unclean. You, you didn't even do it. You might have been the victim of, of violence. There, there might have been occult practices in your home. You might have been sexually assaulted, and your life changed. You just felt dark. You didn't feel like you were as good as other people because of the things that happened. You didn't feel that you could be close to God because of the way you were victimized and what was put upon you. And defilement was cleansed by that expiation. Sent away. You don't have to be that. If you know and believe what happened on the cross, you can know the sins that you've committed are forgiven. But you no longer have to identify yourself as something unclean because of what was done to you. You don't have to identify yourself only as a victim, only as unwanted, only as damaged goods. If you understand and believe expiation, you can know that you are accepted in the Beloved your sins upon him, but also sins that have defiled, cleansed as well. Expiation takes away. The cross saves us from sin and sin's defilement because of Jesus on the cross. Final piece I want us to look at in all the angles of the cross, justification. Paul in Romans said, what becomes of our boasting is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Justification answers the question, how can we stand before God? How can I, with, with even the sins I'm aware of, let alone the fact that I know there's a lot that I'm not, I, I know that I'm so selfish that probably a lot of my repentance prayers haven't even been sincere or motivated for right reasons, that even my repentances are sinful. How will I stand and justify myself before God? It's a question that other people in the Bible have had to face. Isaiah the prophet. While he's a prophet, a holy man called to speak to the people, to tell them the things that God desires for them, and to call them to turn back. While he's doing this, he has a vision that he's brought up into the Holy of Holies, and he sees God. He's standing before God. And he says, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He says, Woe to me, for I'm undone. The Hebrew word that's there is not just there's something a little wrong. 
It's the image of a ball of twine that's completely unwound, unwound out of the ball. It, it's just loose. That's how Isaiah sees himself. The, the prophet, the guy speaking the words for God, the guy who's living it out rightly before others as best as he can, says, when I stand next to God, I'm undone completely. We like comparative holiness until God's the one that we're comparing ourselves to. We like it when we can find some other guy and go, you know what? That guy's scum, so if I have to justify my life, I'm going to stand next to him in the family portrait. Not always realizing there's someone standing on the other side of us going, oh my gosh, that guy's way worse than I am. But when all the lateral looking is taken away, when any excuse to justify ourselves based on what someone else did, not what we did, is taken away, and the comparative theology is me and Jesus, I'm undone. There's nothing. It's not just, I need to improve myself a little, and I'll get there. I'll be justified. No, it's not by works. It's Peter, who when Jesus calls him to be a disciple, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He recognizes the gap, and Jesus still calls him. It's the Apostle John, when he sees the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation, he says, I fell down as though dead. There was nothing I could do. Justification at the cross tells us we can stand before God, but only by what he's done. When we, when we have empty hands and say, no more, I'm not trying one piece to justify myself. It's only in Jesus. We can be justified in the cross. The cross displays all of these, but it also shows the victory of Christ, not just salvation for sinners. He has victory over the enemy. He has victory over death and victory over sin and hell. It's the promise of Genesis 3.15 now fulfilled. That the serpent who was going to bruise the heel takes the body and life of Jesus of Nazareth. But in that process, his head is crushed. He's defeated. His tyrannical rule is over because God has now provided an innocent sacrifice for the sins of all who were guilty. The world's most tyrannical ruler ever known now no longer needs to be feared if you understand the victory we have in Christ. He has to be fought against. The Bible still says, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God. Fear is the most powerful tool the devil has. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. If you understand what was done on the cross, the love that motivated, the sacrifice was made, what was broken because of that, you don't have to be afraid of that one anymore. The place that we feared, that we deserved, hell, is now defeated. Hell's a real place. Jesus talks about it as a place that's eternal. The worm dieth not, he says. He likens it to this garbage fire outside of Jerusalem, Gehenna. It's just trash and acrid smoke, and it constantly burns because there's just more garbage added all the time. In Revelation, he talks about all the dead and the living being brought before God, that moment of no more lateral judgment where it's just us and God. And the people whose names are written in the book of life are brought in, just like when he talks about the winnowing of wheat and chaff or the separating of sheep and goats. And the other ones whose names are not written are cast into the lake of fire. Some people actually have discussions. And if it's a literal lake of fire or it's a metaphorical lake of fire, I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that, but here's what I do know. If it's literal, that really sucks. If it's just like a lake of fire, still sucks. So this is what I know about hell. It's, it's really, really bad, and it doesn't end. But it's defeated at that moment. And we no longer have to be constrained to a, a fate that only leaves us hopeless without end, weeping and gnashing of teeth 
Because if I had to describe hell a different way than, than those physical images and those maybe poetic metaphors or pointing it to a burning garbage dump, I would say it's life without God forever. We only knew love because of what God did. If you've rejected that, you will never know what love is. You won't be able to pour it back out as it's poured in you. You will not know truth. You will not know beauty. You will not know what holds the human soul together. And every day, you will not know it again. You will not be obedient. You will not give thanks. And it will continue without end. If I had to put it another way, I'd say it's the eternal disintegration of the soul. The soul that was meant to rest upon God now no longer can. But victory is won over hell. Jesus cries out, it's finished. He tells his disciples after the resurrection, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. It's the death of sin, not just payment. Romans will say, how are we who are now dead to sin to live any longer in it? It's a process. It doesn't mean you're going to be instantly holy. It's a process called sanctification that requires such strength that the Holy Spirit has to live in us, God in us, to even make it possible for us to get holier over time. But the outer man perishes, the inner man's renewed. It's a victory over death. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, that he would bring many sons and daughters to that place of eternal life. The band's going to come forward, and we're going to celebrate communion, a chance to, to worship and respond centered around the cross. To live life in the shadow of the cross means it becomes our central power. Paid once, spoken about still. That there's not a sin you've committed the pastor will commit that will make God love you less or more. Make him pay a greater or lesser price than he paid in Jesus. Make much of your sin. I don't say this as a recommendation. I say this as a directive for your own good, for my own good. Become a person who knows and is weighed down by their sin. If you don't make much of your sin, you won't make much of the cross. If your sin is I get angry in traffic, you need very little. But if you start to understand how selfish you are at the core of your being, if you start to understand how, how you devour and manipulate other people, if you start to understand what an idolatry you are, though we call ourselves Christians, you'll find yourself in a place like Paul who says, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? If you make much of your sin, the cross will get large. You'll be the person who can worship and say, thanks be to God that Jesus has brought us to this place of peace. You need to know your sin to know the God who atones, redeems, ransoms, and justifies. People are going to come up and hold a tray of broken matzah and a cup of wine and juice. Once you've thought about your sins, and we'll give you time because I realize it's a long list for a lot of us, come up and, and take that broken matzah symbolizing the broken body of Jesus and lay those on. Look for the propitiation of Christ. It may be the things that you feel heavy about because of what's happened in your life. Lay the expiation on Jesus there's so much sorrow that brings us to the cross, the death of God, our sins, but there's so much joy of God's love and holiness and justice. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, gratitude doesn't seem enough to say thank you as we look at the cross and all it reveals of you and all that it reveals of us. God, it requires a response of a heart, of a life, God, we want to come forward as the people you see us to be. We don't just want to be resumes of our life. We don't just want to be who we are compared to someone else. We, we want to be known by you. And God, that means a lot of sin. It means sins that we've gotten used to in our life. It means sins that we've, we've never even brought to you because we thought we'd hide them from you and everyone else in our world. And maybe, sadly, we've even gotten away with it to our own detriment at this point. 
God, would you open us up to be able to be people who bring sin to the cross today? Would you wake us up to the destruction of sin, the cost of sin? Show us again who's paid that price and how it was paid. And God, would you help us to receive the joy of knowing your love, your grace, your goodness and holiness that has provided Jesus for us. As we lay those sins on him, his, his death becomes our life. We ask these things in his name, by the power of the Spirit, for his greater glory. Amen.